Go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. They were looking at a very familiar Bible story. Uh, Pastor Calvin got us rolling back in the Gospel of Mark last week. In fact, Pastor Calvin graduated yesterday. He got to walk with all of his classmates. It was really an exciting thing to get to see. And when he listens to this message later, he's going to be very irritated that I kept calling him Pastor Calvin. But we're very excited to have that young man as a part of Faith Assembly. And all he does here, we we definitely appreciate him. He's with his family this week. Uh, He will be back next week uh, uh, just celebrating with them. His uh, his advancement and in, in education and all of that. So, but we're going to begin reading back in the Gospel of Mark, uh, verse thirty of chapter six. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, "Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while." For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place, but many saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and it is already late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. You give them something to eat, he said. He responded, sorry. They said to him, Should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them, sorry, among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and and fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. This morning, we look at this passage, and we often read this, and we say things like, look how God supplies for the needs of His people. And that's true. We, we look at it, and we, we come away, and we say, look at this amazing miracle. Look at how Jesus bends reality to His will, and He takes five loaves of bread, and He makes so much more that even 200 denarii worth of of bread wouldn't feed these people, but yet he somehow makes it more. out Out of very little, he makes much. Out of almost nothing, he makes a lot. Proves his divinity out of these two fish and these five loaves. We read that and we, we, we get so impressed by the, the miracle, and then we move on, and oftentimes we miss that there is a very deep 
very rich meaning to what has just taken place within this text. What's the message? What's the takeaway from this? What does it mean? And why should I care? And what do I do with the answers to those two questions? Well, this morning, if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. If there's something you don't get from this message, I hope you understand this. Jesus is the good shepherd who feeds his sheep. I'll say that again. Jesus is the good shepherd who feeds his sheep. But the question we have to ask from this is, who are his sheep? Now this story is included in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When all four make their when all four gospels speak of this, it's very important. There's a message there that the gospel writers, the disciples, they want us to make sure we take it, we grasp what is taking place, and let it take root within our heart. This is an important story, and no, no doubt you you've heard this before. In fact, some of you are are hearing me read the text, and you're probably like, "Wasn't there a little boy? Wasn't there a whole song about?" A mom packing his lunch that day? There was, there, there is, and we'll get to that. Maybe you remember it from Sunday school, and you remember those um, cloth billboard things and the little cutouts of people, and, and your Sunday school teacher would stick them on there to illustrate the story, and, and it was kind of like low-budget cartoon to keep you entertained during the Sunday school hours. Maybe that was just my Sunday school, but we had those things. But the truth is, it's a very puzzling story. It's It's an incredible miracle, and too often we will take this story and we will try to wedge something else in there, some other agenda, some other message that that this text is not telling us, and we miss the point of the story altogether. It becomes one of those things we, we can't see the woods because we're so busy focusing on the trees, that type of a scenario. But the point is simply this. Jesus is the good shepherd who feeds his sheep, but we are forced to come away and go, but who exactly are his sheep? What makes someone the sheep of the good shepherd? We see it in our text. We see it as as the, the good shepherd providing for those who are in close proximity to him, who are obedient to him, and most of all, those who are satisfied in him. And as we begin, we, we, I want to look at the, the proximity to Jesus. The word proximity is defined as nearness in space, time, or relationship. And so we have to ask, as we look at this, what is my proximity to Jesus? We read again in verse 30 and 31, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a remote place, and rest for a while, for many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Notice Mark calls the disciples apostles here. I know it's been a few months since we've been in the Gospel of Mark like this, but if you remember, Jesus had designated his disciples as apostles back in chapter 3, verse 14. He said he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him to send them out to preach. And preach they did. Mark, going back up the page of your Bible in verses 12 and 13. So they went out and preached that people should repent. 
They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Jesus had sent them out and now they've come back. They had likely been gone for maybe a week, maybe two weeks, maybe a month. And Jesus had said, you know what, meet me in Capernaum when you're done and we'll, we'll compare notes and we'll, we'll go from there, okay? And that's what's taking place. They've, they've come back, they've, they've reported to him what's transpired. And you know the disciples are likely tired. They've probably, they've been journeying home. They've been coming back to their headquarters. You know, Capernaum has kind of become their unofficial headquarters. And so they come back. And they've, they've been preaching. They've been doing miracles. So they are definitely worn out. As the power of God has rushed through their physical bodies as they've cast out demons, as they've healed the sick, as they've just merely preached, that has wore them out. I think it was Leonard Ravenhill who once said that true ministry of a pastor or an evangelist of a minister, it, that it begins, their ministry begins when the sermon is over. Because that's when they're the most tired. Because if as a pastor, for example, for myself, if I'm preaching the Word of God right, the Spirit of God is moving through me to pierce hearts and change minds. And that wears a person out. It does. It's not my words that are to be flowing out of me, but the Spirit's words. As we preach the Word. And the disciples have experienced this. So Jesus told them to go to a remote place, a desolate place. It's the same word, if you remember way back in chapter 1, when John the Baptist had been preaching in the wilderness, the word is the uninhabited places. It's where people just don't normally show up. And so Jesus says, come with me. We're going to go to this place. Nobody normally goes. And we're going to just hang out for a little while. We're going to rest. And the Greek word for rest that's used here in Mark It's the word anapauste, and it means to be refreshed or to regain one's strength. We're going to stop just for a second here. Where are they going? They're going somewhere to get alone with Jesus, right? They're going somewhere where everybody else is not. They intend to get away from the world, to just get some time alone with them and with Jesus, isn't that the best place to find refreshment? Is that not for the Christian, for the follower, for the sheep of Jesus? Is that not the most restful place just to be alone with Him? To get alone with Jesus, get alone with His Word, get alone in prayer, get the distractions of the world farther away and focus solely on Him. He promises us rest when we do this. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, when we come to Jesus, we leave the rest behind us. But so many times we want to go back and pick it back up, right? We go back and we get stuck in the world. We get stuck in our our friend groups who drag us down, who beat us up. When Jesus says, get closer in proximity to me and you will find true rest. It is there that he sustains us. It's there that he nourishes us. It's there he refreshes and revives us. The The disciples experienced it then and we can experience that now. 
I know those weeks when I feel the most beat down, the most wore out, the most burned out. If I can just take an hour, two hours, half a day, and just spend some time just sitting in my office quietly reading reading scripture, spending time in prayer, maybe come and just walk in the sanctuary or just go walk through town. And if the weather's nice, <laughs> just praying, just spending time, just me and me and Jesus. That's some of the most restful time I have in, in that whole week. And I'm not going to lie. Sometimes you, you get comfortable in, in that big comfy chair in my office. And next thing you know, two or three hours have passed and you haven't been praying, you've been snoring. Right, But that's the most restful time I ever have because my mind and my heart are... I, I may fall asleep praying, but I fall asleep focused on Him. And I wake up ready to go. All the stress and all the problems and all the worries, they begin to fade away the closer we get to Christ. It's not to say that they're gone, but the darkness of this world begins to pale in the light of Jesus. This is what he's trying to show the disciples in this moment. This is the illustration he's painting for us. Verse 32, So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. This remote place, Luke tells us in Luke 9.10, this is Bethsaida. Again, they're they're leaving Capernaum. This is probably the same boat Jesus used back in chapter 5 when he crossed the Sea of Galilee and went into the country of the Gerasenes, the Gerasene demoniac. But we don't miss this, okay? Jesus is in the boat with the 12 disciples. Not the 70, not 500, not the whole crowd. He gets alone with his people, with his team, right? Now, some may call this in today's society, we would call this a company retreat, right? They're going to go away, get some time, just some teaching, just for them, some training, just for them, There's going to be just time for them to get alone and pray with Jesus. Time to eat together, maybe laugh together, maybe blow off some steam. They might even vent their frustrations to one another. You know, they've probably passed, some of them, their their paths over the previous week or so might have overlapped. And they might say, you know what, I went to that one town, and you know that one one guy at the gas station was so rude, they didn't have gas stations, Uh, meat station, I don't know. That one guy at the camel station was so rude to me. Hey, you know what, Peter? I went through that town. That guy was rude to me too. Yeah, how would we? How how did you handle him? You know, this is what they're going to do. This is what what groups of people who have the same mission in mind. This is what we do, right? Where do we see this today? Right here in church. When we come together, when we fellowship. When we consider one another, uh, consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, and we encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. When the church comes together, we are comparing notes. We are building up each other. We may vent our frustrations to each other. We may laugh together. We may challenge one another. We may bless and encourage each other. That's that's what we do here in the church. I saw this. One church, it was a mega church, and I'm not going to name them or pick on them or anything, but I saw their mission statement. It said something, and they've changed it since I saw it, but it was something along the lines of, we care more about the unbeliever than we do the believer. And that didn't sit with me. I, I know what they're trying to say, I think. I kind of understand that. But the purpose of the church is to fuel the believer. The purpose of the church is to build up the believer. 
The goal, yes, is to take the unbeliever and make them a believer, right? But the message that was, that was kind of being portrayed was, once you're a believer, we don't care about you. That's not the case. That's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to refuel you, to empower you, to teach you, encourage you, challenge you, so that you may go, therefore, and make disciples. Matthew 28, 19. The role of the minister within a church, whether it's an evangelist or pastor or teacher, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.12. And again, that's not to say we don't care about unbelievers here. Don't misunderstand me. We absolutely do. But the goal is to take the unbeliever and make them a disciple. Make them a believer that they might grow and mature in Christ. That's discipleship. That's what we're called to do. 99% of the time, by the way, 99% of the time, converts are not made on Sunday morning. They may pray a prayer. They may make a public declaration of their faith or an official declaration of their faith in a service by raising their hands or coming to an altar. But the church had put in the work outside the walls before they got here. The work was put in by their family, praying and teaching and evangelizing to them. The work was put in by their co-workers who shared Jesus with them, who loved them, who invited them to church that day. The work was really done and invested by someone who had been equipped by a church weeks, months, years before that occurrence in that Sunday service. And so we see the disciples, they, they get in the boat with Jesus because they need rest. They need to be refueled. They need to be refreshed. And likely they're excited. They, they want to come get filled up and then go out again, right? That's, that's what they want to do. They enjoyed spreading the good news of Jesus. The church is that place for his disciples today, as is the prayer closet, the study, the home office, wherever you make your alone time with Christ, that is where you get refueled. That's where you get retooled. We get into close proximity to Jesus so we can take others with us there. But not all goes according to the disciples' plans that day. Not all ends up being a, it doesn't end up being a company retreat, right? Verses 33 and 34. But many saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. Many people saw them and recognized them and understood where they were going. How? Well, the text already has told us. They were so busy with the crowd, they didn't even have time to, to get away to eat. And when, the, the, when Jesus and the disciples pull away, these people are so desperate. So desperate to be in proximity to Christ, to be close to him. They outrun the boat. And this does something within the heart of Jesus. He has a deep compassion for them. He pities them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. This is not the only time Jesus feels this way, by the way. Matthew tells us Jesus was going around from, the town, from town to town. He was preaching. He was teaching. He was healing. He was doing miracles. When he saw the crowds, Matthew 9.36, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them 
because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. This is an Old Testament way of thinking, by the way. This is, this is the way a, a true prophet would feel when the people of Israel were vulnerable or when they were under attack from within. When Moses was getting old, he asked the Lord, he said, can you appoint someone over the people of Israel? Moses said, may the Lord, this is Numbers 27, 16 and 17, may the Lord, the God who gives breath to all, appoint a man over the community who will go out before them and come back in before them and who will bring them out and bring them in so that the Lord's community won't be like sheep without a shepherd. And so God gives Moses Joshua. He says, go put your hands on Joshua. Anoint him, raise him up. The idea is that, that the people, the flock, they need a leader to direct them. They need a strong leader to lead them, to take them to the right place and the right direction. When we get to Ezekiel 34, God promises himself to be this very thing for the nation of Israel who were abused by their shepherds. The, the priests and the prophets were taking advantage of the people. God says they're even getting fat off the sheep. They're ruling them with violence and cruelty. Ezekiel 34 verse 5 it says, They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. And we skip down to verse 10 and 11. It says, This is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my flock from them and prevent them from shepherding the flock. The shepherds will no longer feed themselves for I will rescue my flock from their mouths so that they will not be food for them. For this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. And as we've walked through already, if you recall, as we've walked through the Gospel of Mark, can we not see that the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees have become these cruel shepherds over the people of Israel. They're lording their knowledge, their rules, and their traditions over the people. And when the people don't know, because the Pharisees don't teach them, they mock them for their ignorance. When the people don't believe, when they don't have faith, the Pharisees mock them for that. And they take and they take from the people, even from their own parents, the Pharisees would. And then they mock because the people don't have much to give. They were not tending the sheep. They were, they were refusing to let the sheep graze. Instead, they were building them pins and caging them. They weren't letting them grow and learn. See, for the Pharisees, the people were always lower than them. Jesus comes along and he flips it upside down. He says, if you want to lead like me, you've got to be a servant. And Jesus sees these people. He sees their, their hurt, the cruelty they've been under, and he has pity on them, and he feels such a deep compassion for them. I imagine as they were still in the boat, Jesus kind of leaned back and, and looked at the disciples and said, all right, guys, looks like we're not going to have a little rest today. After all, the work's just getting started. We'll rest later, but right now, we've got to tend to my sheep. And the, these people, they were so desperate to get close to Jesus that they're going to come and they're going to sit down and they're going to be taught to him. They're going to be taught by him again, and their hearts and their minds are going to be fed by the good shepherd. As Jesus feeds his sheep who are close to him. And then we look at obedience to Jesus. One of the best definitions for obedience is simply submission to another's authority. 
How obedient are we to Jesus? How often do we submit to his authority in our lives? We look again in verse 35. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted and it is already late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. The sun's starting to go down. The disciples are likely tired. They're in this uninhabited area. There's no Dollar General nearby where they can go pick up a snack. There's no place where they can go get a, a meal or even a drink. And so the disciples, they finally go to, the, to Jesus and they say, you need to send these people away. In the Greek, it's the word apolusen. And it means you need to release them. In other words, these people are not going to leave you on their own. You need to tell them to go away. You need to make them leave. Now you have to understand that it, this is the first time in the lives of this crowd that someone has loved them enough and cared for them enough to be honest with them and to teach them and to sit down and, and explain things to them. Jesus saw them as sheep. The Pharisees saw them as income. The revolutionaries and the cult leaders that preceded Jesus they saw them as cannon fodder, but Jesus sees them as people who need love, who need tenderness, who need care. He sees them as sheep in need of a shepherd. And he loves these people enough to be honest with them, to give them the truth of the word, to, to preach to them what is truth and do so without flinching. Many people today, they don't even get that from their shepherds or their church leadership, but Jesus is preaching to them. He's teaching them so passionately so tenderly, they will not leave until he tells them, you've got to go. Now the disciples, I want to be clear, the disciples, they're not being selfish here. They're not saying, Jesus, I'm too tired. You notice what they said? They need to eat. They're not saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm exhausted. You know how long I had to travel? I went over to the country of the Gerasenes myself, and, and I walked all around the Sea of Galilee myself, and then I had to meet you back this morning. And man, I'm, my, my dogs are barking. I'm tired. I'm ready to go home. Can you send them? That's not what the disciples do. They, they love these people too. Jesus, you've got to let them go. And they're not just concerned about their food. They're concerned about where they're going to stay. In Luke 9, 12, it says, Late in the day, the disciples approached, them and, approached him and said to him, Send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging because we're in a deserted place. Jesus has probably been teaching for hours. In fact, our text says he's been teaching many things. And I hope you notice this before we go on. This crowd has gotten bigger. When he landed, it was a large crowd. Back in verse 33, the crowd ran there on foot and got there ahead of Jesus. But you have to understand, not everyone was fast. It was a, on the land distance, it was probably eight miles, and the boat only had to go four. So the younger, the more eager of the crowd, they would have gotten there early, but the rest are going to keep coming on foot. The rest are going to be helped along there slowly. They might have even come in their own boats themselves. John tells us in, in his account, he says, when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, there were more and more people coming to hear his teaching. So it's likely this, these disciples had a chance to, to brace for the crowd, to prepare for it, to settle in, 
for a time of this preaching and this teaching, but time has passed and the crowd just keeps getting bigger and they're getting hungry. The, the sun is setting. And so the disciples, they're not necessarily concerned for themselves. They're not even concerned for Jesus. But these people, they know these people are going to start getting hungry soon. And a hungry mob quickly becomes an angry mob. Right? Good teaching or not, pretty soon they're going to have to start breaking up fights. So Jesus, before things get out of hand, release these people so they can go eat. But Jesus has other plans. He says in verse 37, you give them something to eat. They said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Now notice two things here. Two powerful things. The first is this. Jesus refuses to send someone away who wants to be close to him. First and foremost, Jesus is a teacher. And he's not going to refuse willing students who are before him, not here, not this day. They are seeking him. They want him. They need him. They are starving for his word. This is, there is no difference today than there was then. People are starving for an encounter with Christ. They are starving for the word of the Lord. This is why I, I tell this, I say this all the time. I will die on the hill of good, expository, Christ-centered gospel preaching every time. Charles Spurgeon said, Never was man blamed in heaven for preaching Christ too much. Now people can preach other ways they want, but I'm telling you that preaching Christ is what the disciples did in the book of Acts. That's how they grew the church, preaching the gospel. You cannot find one sermon in the, in the New Testament that doesn't point people to Christ. You cannot, from Acts forward, you can't find an epistle and you can't find a, a sermon within the text of the book of Acts that does not point people to the cross of Christ. It doesn't teach the gospel. Now there are other, I saw something this just yesterday, someone sent this to me, and you guys know I'm kind of a big geek, right? Like, I, I like comic books, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings make great sermon illustrations. Someone sent me this video of this church from Canada, and their Easter play was all about the Avengers, and they crucified Iron Man. I'll tell you something right now. If I was in that church, I would have got up and walked away. That's blasphemy. Iron Man is a fictional character. Jesus Christ is God, and he died on a cross for your sins, and he rose again on the third day. Some movie star, some comic book character did not die for you. God did. And when you see stuff like that, it just makes me cringe so bad because you know what? They probably thought this is a good idea. This is going to bring in the kids. I believe it was Kevin Zahn once told me, whatever you have to do to bring people into your church, you're going to have to keep doing to keep them there. So they're going to progressively get worse if they want to keep the crowds coming. And here we go. This is, the, this is what we see. So many churches want to grow fast. They never stop to ask, are we growing right? Employing gimmicks and nonsense and preaching things that are not Scripture never teaches, never teaching the, the gospel in some effort to just lure people in, using the tools 
of the world to satisfy the world never, ever took anybody to Jesus Christ. God is still the same and man is still the same, so the instructions stay the same. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, This may be slow work. It often is. It is a long-term policy, but my whole contention is that it works, that it pays, and that it is honored and must be because it is God's own method. He has always honored it and still honors it in the modern world. And after you've tried these other methods and schemes and found out they will come to nothing, you'll be driven back to this ultimately. He's talking about expository preaching. Expose what the heart of God is. Expose what the Scripture is telling us. And like I said, I will die on that hill every time. Jesus preached and he refused to send the people away who were hungry for his word. Now the second thing we see is simply this. The disciples ask if they should go and purchase bread. Now they're they're being rhetorical here. A denarius was a day's wage. 200 denarius, they don't have that kind of money. In fact, in John's gospel, he tells us the account that Philip, he, he says, where can they get bread? And Jesus, uh, Jesus asked him, where can we get bread? Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have even a little. So the disciples know they cannot afford to feed the people. They're saying, Jesus, there is nothing we can do to feed these people unless you do something. We are powerless, so you need to move. And there we are. How many times in our lives do we say, Jesus, unless you move, I can't go anywhere. Unless you fix this, I can't do any more. They are at this point of desperate obedience. Jesus, pretty soon this crowd's going to become a mob unless you do something. Jesus, unless you've got 200 denarii in your back pocket, we don't stand a chance. Unless you've got some way of just whipping up food out of nothing, out of nowhere that we don't know about, which is what ends up happening, they realize they can't do what he has asked them to do unless he does something first. If we love him, we carry out his directive. He said, you give them something to eat. Jesus, I don't have anything. Ah, but Jesus does. Jesus can take what little bit you do have and do something far greater, something far more miraculous, something far more powerful. If we love him, we will feed his sheep. We may not know how. We may not know with what. We may not do it perfect, but we will do it in obedience. What he said to Peter, he said three times, Peter, do you love me? And each time he said, yes, Lord, I love you. You know I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. He said, okay, you can't afford. Think about it like this. He says, you can't afford to feed them with the world's food. You can't afford to go pick up something in the next town over and buy bread, but you've got me. So feed your sheep, feed my sheep. And it's just like the disciples, so many times we might say, but Lord, that doesn't make monetary sense. That doesn't make common sense. That doesn't make logical sense. But Jesus says, hold on, you are missing the point. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out five 
They said, five and two fish. Then he instructed them, have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. Get ready. You're going to see what I can do with the little bit you got. And you might be sitting there, wait a second, Pastor Jeff. You said something about a kid and his lunch pail, his mom packed him. I know there was a boy in this story somewhere. Yes, there was. John's gospel records that. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus, we've got something, but it's definitely not enough. There's a lot of people here at this point. There's no way, Jesus. So again, we see the disciples are not quite understanding Jesus' plan, but our text does not say that they did not trust Jesus. They did, or they wouldn't have even bothered looking for that little boy's food. They did trust Jesus, or they wouldn't have interrogated the crowd, what what kind of food did you bring? So their obedience is going to lead to one of the most mind-blowing miracles in all of the New Testament. Five barley loaves or bread cakes, two fish, all we got. But Jesus says, have them sit down on the green grass. Now, this is something he tells them, sit down in groups. In the Greek, it's, it's the phrase, anaklinae pontes symposia symposia. And literally, from the, from the Greek, it would be, tell them to sit down all in groups of groups. And we read that and we say, okay. But you understand, in the Greek, this is language, used, this is language that's used for sitting down for a banquet. And in fact, if you're Jewish, which this crowd likely was, and the disciples were, this type of language is used for a feast, like Passover. Have them sit down with those two fish and those five loaves. Tell them to get ready for a feast. Tell them to get ready for a banquet. We don't miss this. This is this is something important too, because Mark is the only one who records this. Mark is the only one who uses this little diamond in the rough. When we mine the scriptures and we see stuff like this, it's just beautiful. Because he is the only one, he says, he makes them sit down in the green grass. Where have we heard that before? Listen to the Legacy Standards uh, translation of this. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see, Psalm 23 is unfolding before our eyes in the feeding of the 5,000. He makes me lie down in the green pastures. Why did Jesus take them there? To find rest. He restores my soul. He revives me. The whole purpose of them being there to begin with. And they sit down in the green pasture of this wilderness, this uninhabited land, and they're about to be fed by the good shepherd. Jesus feeds the sheep who obey him. And finally, the satisfaction in Jesus. Satisfaction can be defined as the pleasure derived from the fulfillment one receives from another source. How fulfilled are you in Jesus? Are we pleased with all that he is? Is Jesus enough for you? Verse 40 says, So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish, 
And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the, the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. And the crowd sits down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Now, some commentators, they take this and they, they try to draw a line straight, straight back to Moses because Moses does something similar in Exodus 18, 21. And, and I want to I cover that because this is, this is important. That text reads, but you should select from all the people, able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating dishonest prophets. Place them over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Okay, so they have 5,000 people there, right? We're going to get to that in a moment. But we don't see groupings of thousands. And we don't see groupings of tens. So what we have to remember is that in Moses' purpose, this is for military purposes. This is for building the army of Israel. And we may try and force that in. We may try and wedge that in here because we're in the Lord's army, the saints go marching in, right? Something like that. But that's not what Jesus is doing. When we, when we look at it, Mark uses this Greek word, the word prosier. And it's only used in this text in the New Testament. Now, in other Greek writings, so, so we don't have any other New Testament way of, of looking up to see what, what Mark intends this word to be. But we do have other Greek writings from this era. And in those writings, it refers to flower beds. He's having them sit as if they are a tilled garden. He's having them group together as you would group types of vegetables together in your whoop. <laughs> as you would try and group certain vegetables together in your in your backyard garden. That's how Jesus has these people sit down. This makes more sense in our context. Jesus is preaching to people whose hearts are like soil. You remember the, the parable that he, he had just spoke not that long ago about when, when we preached the word, the sowing of the seed falls on good soil, tilled soil. So to illustrate this further, what happens is those groups who are going to hear his word, they're like a garden to Jesus. They're his garden. We might call to mind passages like John 15. John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. The idea is these people are going to have the seeds sown within their heart and these 5,000 people are going to produce amazing fruit. And there's a, there's a little callback or maybe something else here. Jesus is walking among the people and he's feeding them. As they are spread out like a garden. And what we are seeing is an illustration perhaps of of some kind of how God walked with his people in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. What Jesus does is is he, to illustrate this further, he takes the bread and the fish and he prays and he breaks the bread. This is what the head of a Jewish family would do before a meal. And so he looks out at his garden and he blesses the meal and he feeds the fruit of his labor as he walks among them. This is almost a beautiful visual for for those in attendance of Eden itself, but not Eden as it was, Eden as it will be. And you notice after he breaks the loaves, he keeps giving them to his disciples. 
He kept giving to the people. Church, the bread of life never runs out. The hand of a man may take the bread and give it, but the God who supplies that bread will never want for anything, never need for anything. Paul said, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. They're physically hungry, sure, but the spiritual nourishment that crowd received that day would fill them greater than any bread or any fish their mouths are going to chew or their stomachs are going to digest. What their hearts are taking in is vastly more important. They may get physically hungry again tomorrow, but what they receive in that moment will last for eternity. And this is key. Mark says, everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Everyone ate and was satisfied. John says it this way in his gospel, Jesus took the loaves and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. You know, in the Old Testament, Elijah, he performs a similar miracle, providing for one widow enough oil and flour to to bake bread, to survive a famine. Elisha also, he performs a miracle, 20 barley loaves. He feeds 100 people. That's in 2 Kings 4. But now one greater than both of those Old Testament prophets walks among his people, and he feeds how many? Now those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. Now in the Greek, and you see this in a lot of modern translations, in the Greek, they there's sometimes the word men used in English, and really it's gender neutral. It means men and women, brothers and sisters. And so when you pick up like the, the 2020 version of the NASB, you'll notice that many times it will say brothers and sisters, but not here, not in this text. Very clear, there are only 5,000 men. So what that tells us is they aren't counting the wives. They aren't counting the women who were in attendance. They weren't counting the children. And some Some believe there might be as many as 10, 12, maybe even 20,000 people that Jesus fed that day. That is a miracle. But hold on. That's not the greatest miracle. If you're a parent and you've ever fixed a meal for a whole family, you know the greatest miracle. Everyone ate and was satisfied. Nobody complained. They liked the meal, and it wasn't that much. You notice he didn't make steak. He didn't have a sushi thing going, you know, a hibachi grill or anything like that. He just bread and fish. And they ate, and they were satisfied. One pastor says it like this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. These people ate, and they were satisfied. When we are satisfied in Him, when we are obedient to Him, we will find ourselves in close proximity to Him, and Jesus will feed the sheep who are satisfied in Him. I'm going to move to close this morning. I don't have a lot of extra things to add, but I would ask you this. Are you satisfied in Jesus today? Or are you chasing other things? One evangelist I heard said, the reason we sin is because we're more satisfied in our sin in that moment than we are in Christ. Are you obedient to him or are you living in rebellion? Are you close to him today or does the idea of closeness to Christ terrify or frighten you? One of the names of God is this, Emmanuel. One of the names of Christ is God with us. 
He came and he walked amongst mankind. And ultimately, he's going to be placed on the cross for our sins. But he rises again that we might rise again and be with him throughout eternity. The cross is a bridge to our relationship, uh, to a right relationship with the Father. And the blood of Christ is how it's paved. As we walk in the presence of the Father in obedience to the Son, as the Holy Spirit leads us. There is no other way to get to heaven. There is no other way to be right with God except through the cross of Christ. If you search for any other way, I can tell you this, your life will never be one that is satisfied. You'll never be in obedience and you'll never be in proximity. You'll never be in close proximity to Christ if you try any other route. Jesus said it this way, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction and there are many who, find, who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. Are we striving to be in close proximity to Christ, to be obedient to him? And when we are there, are we satisfied in him? And if we are, he will feed his sheep. Will you stand with me today as we close in prayer? If you're here and you're saying, you know what? I am not in obedience. I am not in close proximity. I am not satisfied in Christ. We'd love to have our prayer team pray with you this morning. You want to find your way to the front or you just want to grab someone near you and ask them to pray with you. We're, we're happy to do that here at Faith as well. How often are you letting God feed you? How often are you getting alone with him as the disciples did that day? And how often are you hearing his word and letting it take root in your heart, letting it penetrate your very core, your mind? One of the hardest things to do is let scripture change our minds on things. Because many times we read it, we think we know what scripture already says. But the Holy Spirit still changes our minds, still grows us, still matures us. We constantly are or wanting to be taught by his word. It doesn't happen when we surround ourselves with the noise and the, the hustle and the, the bustle of life. Get alone with Jesus. Even today, if you're, if you're just here and you're just saying, I just need to be alone with him for a few minutes, find a spot in the sanctuary this morning and just get alone with him in prayer. Open your Bible. Read through the text today. Read through some of the Psalms. Pray some of those things. And let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Father God, this morning, right now, penetrate our hearts. Lord, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces, it pierces us, Father God, to the very core of who we are. I pray you're doing that now. Father, I pray as I've spoken, it was your words out of my mouth that you are the one who is using the message even now to change hearts, change minds, grow us, grow me, Father, I pray. May you be glorified in your kingdom built through all of this. Because you are the good shepherd who feeds his sheep. Lord, I pray we're your sheep.